And as you do, please turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. I pray this, this series has been ministering to your heart as it has been to my heart. Ezra chapter 8, you know, if you, it's right after Second Chronicles. It's about a third of the way through your Bibles. Um, I, I want to confess something to you all this morning. I have this really bad habit, and I apologize if you've experienced it or if you've noticed it. Uh, Sometimes I'll be talking with you, I'll be listening, and my mind begins to take me away from the conversation. And slowly, but inevitably, I stop listening. Now, my poor wife, she experiences this all the time. We'll be having a conversation, and she'll inevitably say The phrase that no man ever wants to hear, are you listening to me? And every man knows what they respond, of course I'm listening. And when we mean, of course we're listening, it means, of course, I could probably get about a fourth of what you said right. But so often I don't listen. Now, listening is important. I mean, that goes without saying. Listening is important. If you want to have a relationship with anyone, you need to listen. You, you need to be able to have a conversation, hear, listen. The same is true with our relationship with God. If you want a relationship with God, you need to listen. Well, well this morning, our text, it's all about listening. It's all about asking two fundamental questions, which are, are God's people finally listening? And then second, now, who's listening to God's people? And really, the, the, the sort of focal point of this text isn't are God's people listening? It's who's listening to God's people. Well, we come to Ezra chapter 8. And, and you'll notice, as Phil read some of it, that it's a travel narrative. Right? It, it, the text is divided actually really, really clearly and simply. You've got this genealogy, but then afterwards, they camp by a river, and then do some things, and then they leave, and they go to Jerusalem. They're leaving Babylon and traveling slowly over about a four-month stint to Jerusalem. It's a travel narrative. A lot of stories are actually travel narratives when you think about it. Some of you know the author Leo Tolstoy, who wrote War and Peace, you know, those, he wrote many of those books you say you've read, but really you just read the cliff notes, right? Well, he once said that every story, all great literature, boils down to two plots. A man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Isn't that good? Well, today we've got a, a man who goes on a journey. Now, that, that, that man is Ezra. We met him last week in chapter 7. He's a man who studied God's word, right? meditated on God's word, obeyed God's word, and taught God's word. He, he was a scholar teacher. He, he was there to reform God's people. And he was taking a caravan of people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Now, the, the whole book of Ezra really is about renewal. It's about God's people being renewed under God's law. For, for 70 years, they were in captivity to Babylon. And then, after 70 years, 
King Cyrus, the, the king of the Persians, allowed God's people to return. We saw, that, we saw that early in the book of Ezra. And now years later, about seven decades later, we've got a new king, King Artaxerxes, who allows now king, or who, who allows Ezra and, and a company of others to come back to Jerusalem. The temple's already been built. The altar's already been built. But they still needed to be reformed and to be renewed. And so the king of Persia at that time sends back Ezra and company. And that's what we have here in chapter 8. Now, now, before we get to the details of this chapter, in some ways we need to understand, to kind of get the, the, the kind of thrust of this, we need to understand why they were in captivity in the first place. So, so if you go back and you read just the history, you read many of the prophets, it's pretty clear that they were brought into captivity by God. God raised up Assyria first and then Babylon second to judge God's people because they were unfaithful to God. They, they had turned their back from God. They had begun to worship other gods. They had begun to spiritually be unfaithful. And so God sought to awaken them like an earthquake and he raises up Assyria first and then Babylon and they sack the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom and then bring them into captivity. But that's the simple, right? That's one way to look at it, that, that they were brought into captivity because of their sin. But Jeremiah the prophet puts it another way. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 4 and 6, Jeremiah kind of interprets the captivity or the soon-to-be captivity this way. Notice that you'll see a word or you'll hear a, a word three times. See if you can point it out. God speaking to Jeremiah, then Jeremiah speaking to God's people. Verse 4, say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law, which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you again and again and again and again and again and again, Though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city a curse among all the nations of the earth. God's people were sent into captivity because they were deaf, because they didn't listen. God spoke, God warned them, God even sent prophets to speak and warn them, and God's people did not Listen. So they were sent for 70 years into captivity. And so the rhetorical question for them, after all these years, and it's the question for us this morning, are they finally listening? Are they finally at a place where they're going to hear God's word and obey God's word? Are they listening? Well, in some ways, chapter 8 answers that question for us. So, so let's look at some of these details. So if you go to chapter 8, verse 1, and you'll see it in verses 1 through verse 14, you see a genealogy. Now, this isn't the first genealogy that we've seen in Ezra. We saw one earlier in chapter 2. 
And, and both genealogy are, are, are basically putting forth various men, various tribes that are coming with this caravan of people. The first with Zerubbabel under King Cyrus, and now this second group with Ezra under the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. And then, starting in verse 15, they, they arrive at a river and they camp for three days. Now, I'm going to point out some details, but remember, the devil's in the details, right? That's a weird sentence. Okay, there's clues in the details, right? So they camp and gather for three days at this river, and he gathers them. We're going to see why that's a problem in a second, but let's just see what Ezra does. Starting in 16, Ezra gets these wise men, and he's very, very particular because he grabs these these leaders, these wise men, they're called, but he doesn't leave anything to chance. He says, I know you're wise, but I want you to do exactly what I say. I want you to go to this man named Edu, a great name if you're looking for a boy's name. I want you to go there, and I want you to say we need some men, some temple servants, some men of Levi. And so they do. They, they go there. And two names are particularly, um, we see here they find uh, Hashabiah and Sherebiah. And they bring, they come, the, these, these, these Levites and various men, 220 of these temple servants, they come to the river. Now they've got all of them. They've got people from the tribe of Levi. Now why is that important? Well, if you just skip down to verse 24, you realize why it's so important. Verse 24, Then I, then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Ten of their kinsmen, but two names are listed. Sherebiah, Hashabiah. Now, why does he need these men? And why does he set them apart? It's because of the treasure that they had. Now, now we learned about this treasure that they had gotten from the king in chapter 7. The king gives them gold and treasures to adorn the temple. And he gives them vessels that we're going to go in the temple. And if you read your Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, you realize that, well, most people can't touch those things. If you go down to verse 28, Ezra makes it explicit. He says, you are holy. The Levites are holy, right? They were set apart. They didn't have an inheritance when they entered the promised land. God was their inheritance. They were set apart for special work in the temple of God. And so now they have this temple treasure, this, this gold and silver that was going to be adorn the temple, and then these vessels that were going to go in the temple. And Ezra goes, we need those men to guard that treasure because the Levites are holy, the priests are holy, and this, these vessels are holy as well. So Ezra counts it all out. He weighs out all of this treasure and he says, I want you to guard it. I want you to protect it because we're going on a journey. And on this journey, there were pirates. This is the Wild West. Then in verse 31, they finally depart the river. 
And they make their way all the way to Jerusalem. They do so successfully. We've seen this theme over and over again. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand was on Ezra to find these men. And then now, well, the hand of the Lord is upon them as they make this journey all the way to Jerusalem. They finally arrive in Jerusalem with all this treasure intact. They then present it to the temple. It's weighed out. And then, starting in verse 35, they celebrate. They offer sacrifices, burnt offerings. Not because they had to, not because the king told them to, but because that's what God's people do. God's people worship God. That's the travel narrative. And Ezra is very careful all the way through this journey. He camps right before this river and waits three days, puts them in kind of in various tribes. And instantly you should be thinking of an Old Testament illusion because there's another Old Testament character who does this very thing as he's leading God's people to the promised land. Joshua. Joshua chapter 3. They're by a river. And before they cross, he gets everyone in the right order groups them, then the ark goes forward, and then they follow the ark. They follow God into God's promised land. Ezra is the new Joshua leading God's people back into God's promised land. And he's very, very careful. If you've noticed, the number 12 comes up many, many, many times, not by way of coincidence, Right? You, you see it in verse 24. You see it as it relates to the various offerings in verse 35. And if you take the priests and the, sons of, and the son of David out, you have 12 groups of households in the genealogy. Not to mention a character shows up. The great king, David, shows up in verse Two, and again in verse 20. God's people had Babylonian dust all over them. They'd been in captivity for a long, long time. And Ezra is signaling to us narratively that they're still God's people. This is the remnant that Ezekiel was talking about. These are still God's people journeying to God's promised land in order to worship God in his place. So in answer to our question, are God's people listening? Well, yeah. Yeah, they are listening, especially Ezra. All the different details, they're, they're listening, finally. But if you flip over to chapter 9 and chapter 10, which God willing will look at next week, you realize that 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 listening, well, it's short-lived. They would listen, but not completely, not fully. This this past week, uh, a few of us from the church were at a preaching conference. It, It was more like a preaching workshop, and we were studying the book of Mark. And if you've 
study the book of Mark, you know that, that, that one of the major themes has to do with seeing and hearing. So you have Mark announcing that the, the Son of God is here, that Christ has arrived. And the question set forth uh, on religious teachers and Pharisees and scribes and Samaritans, all of these people, is are they listening? Are they hearing? Will they accept Jesus as the Messiah? One actually kind of story in particular highlights this, which is the story of the transfiguration. So, so there you have Jesus taking a few of the disciples up a mountain. And when he gets up into the mountain, he is just transfigured, right? He, Jesus, it's, it's as if he kind of uh, unpeeled some of his glory, some of his divinity for them to see, and he's wonderfully transfigured. Must have been quite the terrifying scene. And who's with Jesus? Two of the great Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. And right there, God says, this is my son. This, this, this voice from heaven, similar to the voice that Moses heard, this voice says, this is my son. And then God says, this simple but profound little phrase, listen to him. As great as Moses was, as great as Elijah was, Jesus is the final prophet of God. Listen to him. And that's what the gospel of Mark is all about. Constantly, People are not listening and not hearing. They're not seeing. They're not understanding. You just keep reading after that. And three times Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. And they constantly say, what? But once Jesus did die on a cross and rise from the grave, that was the penny that dropped. And they finally understood. And they finally were ready to listen. In many ways, you could just boil down humanity's problem as the problem of deafness. That is one of the metaphors the Bible uses for sin. Because of our sin, because we're sinners, we can't hear from God. It started from our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were deaf to God. They stopped listening to God. And then if you just fast forward, story to story, book of the Bible after book of the Bible, and the idea of deafness, God's people not listening to God, is a metaphor for the sin of all of us, the sin within our heart. It's not just that we have sin in our heart. We have, metaphorically speaking, sin in our ears. We have earwax, and we can't hear God. That's what sin does. Sin doesn't just defile us. Sin makes us unable to hear from God. God. So how do you hear from God? Well, if you're not a Christian, you might be wondering, well, how is it that any of us could hear from God? Well, actually, Jesus tells us really clearly right before the transfiguration. Jesus meets a deaf man. The deaf man cries out for healing 
And Jesus touches his ear and heals his deafness. And it's pretty crystal clear that that's not just about that healing. Only through Jesus can we hear the voice of God. Only when we cry out to God and realize that it's through Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and believing in that story, that our deafness can be cured. Now, for the Christians, the question that I, that I asked earlier is still the question that I think should be upon us all, which is, not just is, are the people in Ezra's time listening, it's not just is Ezra listening to God finally. Are we listening to God? Are we listening to God? Just think of all of the different voices that come into our minds each and every day. Or just think of all the voices that are just inside of our minds just, you know, swirling around. Some of the tension, some of the conflicts, some of the well, problems in this world is that we don't know what voices to listen to. One person says this, another says this. Which is right, which is wrong. We have all of these voices Are we listening to God? Well, I'll give you one example of something that God's been speaking to me about. God's been speaking to me through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is something profound that I've just been thinking about and mulling over like a lozenger for a long time. Jesus says this, I have told you these things, all of these sorts of things, so that in me you may have peace. Now, if you're anything like me, I want peace right now. There's just so much unrest. I'm just yearning for peace. And so when Jesus says, I've, I've come to give you peace, I go, okay, give me this peace. What, what do I need to do in order to get this peace? And this is what Jesus says. He says, first, in this world you will have trouble. That's the first thing he says, which I think the American church has never quite understood. We need to lower the expectation that our world is one of trouble. That's what it means to live in a broken world. If you want to have peace, we can't conflate this world with the world to come. So first, Jesus sort of sets the expectation that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you're going to have to carry the cross. And then second, he says, not just in this world you will have many troubles, he says, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Peace sort of comes from a, un, uh, from a, from a healthy understanding of this world, the world we inhabit, and it also comes in a realization that Jesus has overcome the world. And because he has overcome the world, because a Christian is in Christ, unified to Christ, his victory is now our victory. Him overcoming the world means that we will overcome the world. His perseverance means that we will persevere 
God is speaking to us. Every time you open up God's word or every time God's word is spoken to you, God is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? That's a really important question. Are we listening to God? But I want to just kind of put before you this, that as important as that question is, there is something far more important than even that. And that's this. Is God listening to you? More important than if you're listening to God is if God is listening to you. Look at verse 21 with me. This, this, this is the sort of focal point, the fulcrum, the, the climax of this travel narrative. It's verses 21 through 23, especially 23. I'm going to read it all. Ezra, then I, that is Ezra, proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ah, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey from ourselves, our, for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all those who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Verse 23, so we fasted, we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So here we have Ezra. They're about to take off. And they humble themselves. There's a spiritual revival, as, as it were. They humble themselves. They, they fast from, from food. And they've got another problem. You see, there's sort of two problems in the text. The first is a Levitical problem. This is a sort of problem of presumption. They, they had already told the king, God's hand is on us. We, we don't need the sword. We don't need your protection. God will protect us. But then they're looking at their journey. They're looking at their four-month journey and realizing, uh-oh, what did we get ourselves into? So in light of that, they, they're desperate. And desperate people Pray. Desperate people realize that if God doesn't show up, they're in trouble. And so that's what they do. But then in verse 23, we see this shocking, shocking, shocking little phrase that as they fasted, as they prayed, God listened to them. Now, why is that so important? Well, I I mentioned earlier Jeremiah when Jeremiah said, You know, I keep talking and you don't listen. I'm sending prophets and you're not listening, so I'm sending you in captivity. But another prophet talked about listening as well. Isaiah. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 1, the sins of Judah are kind of exposed. And then we read this. God says this. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. 
God not only says, I sent messengers and I spoke and you didn't listen. God says there's going to come a point. I'm not going to listen to you. You've heard those, those, those people, maybe even like children, who say like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And you go, yeah, right. Well, God does that. He says, I'm not listening to you. You, you just, you're, not, you're just sorry for the consequence of your sin. You're not sorry that you sinned against a holy God. And there will come a time where I will not listen. That is why this question is so important. Because they had an expectation that maybe they were so far gone, their sin was so great, their exile was so exhaustive, that maybe God himself would stop listening to them. This is what our sin does. Sin discredits us. And if you've ever known this, when someone discredits themselves, you stop listening to them. If you had a marriage book, right, and you're reading it, you're like, it's great, and then you found out a year later that there was infidelity and one of them had an affair, I promise you this, you probably would not recommend that book anymore. It discredits it. Or let me just discredit myself for a moment, okay? I'm going to share something, and when I do, some of you are not going to want to listen to me anymore. I have a secret. For the last two months, I have secretly been listening to Christmas music. (laughs) Don't roll your eyes at me. Join the dark side. It's been wonderful. Right? Now, if I was to say that and say, hey, I want to talk about musical taste. Oh, I think Christmas music should should start in the fall and go to Christmas. You'd say, I'm not going to believe another word that comes out of that guy's mouth. That's what happens. Things discredit us. Our sin discredits us. And when that happens, we stop listening. And so God's people are wondering, has their sin, have they been in Babylon so long that they are completely, utterly discredited? And then we come to verse 23. And there's a sense in which the answer is, yes, they have discredited themselves. And yet even In light of that reality, God listens to them. God listens to them. That's the climax of this travel narrative. Not only had they listened to God, but God is the sort of God who listens to his people. Now, there's a word for that. Grace. At the heart of the Christian life, at the heart of, the, of a Christian's relationship with God, is grace. This is what is unique about Christianity. I, I've realized this when I've talked to various campus ministers who've worked with, with uh, amongst other um, people evangelizing various religions. That, that, for instance, I was talking to one who, who was working in Utah trying to, you know, do campus ministry at a predominantly Mormon university, saying, how do you win a Mormon? And he said, well, you don't do it by good works in one sense. That's, that's hard to outdo a Mormon. He said, we realized that we were going to give them the very thing that they yearned for, grace. 
We were continually taught that you can have a relationship not by being perfectly credited, but that having been discredited because of our sin, you can still have a relationship with God because that relationship is based fundamentally, fully, truly, primarily on grace. That's what we see here. Their relationship with God was based on grace. God had never abandoned his people. It looked from time to time like God had abandoned his people. If you think about it, you've got God who raises up the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, they, they, they sack Jerusalem. And then as you're reading in the book of Ezekiel, the shocker of shocker is that God's glory leaves the temple. And if you see in our text, he, you know, the new Jerusalem, or sorry, the new Joshua, as, as Ezra is going back to Jerusalem, you think, oh, the ark's going to come, right? God's presence on the ark is going to come with no ark. God's presence never goes back into the temple. But you see in the book of Ezra time and time again that God is with his people. Right? You, you, you saw it in three places here. God is, God's hand is on his people. God is with his people. And then you fast forward in the story, and this is where this should give you goosebumps. Because in the Old Testament, God was with his people, but distant from his people in the temple. That's what the priests were. They guarded this. So, so God was with his people. Now we read that God was on his people, but there would come a day where God would be in his people. God would never abandon his people. And we see that as one of the major themes in the book of Ezra, that God is with his people, because it was never their fidelity, their faithfulness that kept God with them. It was always God's own promise that there would be a remnant, that I will be with my people, and that someday I won't be just with my people. Someday I'll be in my people. One of the most bizarre things, I think, is, is after Jesus' resurrection, right? And he ascends, and you, you've got the disciples just looking up going, what do we do now? Jesus is gone. But Jesus over and over again said, it's better, more better that I leave, because when I leave, I'm bringing, uh, someone else is coming. And you've got to wait, wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high. God's God's with his people. The really wonderful thing about this travel narrative isn't just, are they listening finally? And we see that in part. We don't see it fully, but we see it in part. But really, it's that we have a God who listens to us, that listens to us in our suffering, that listens to the rich and the poor, that, that listens to the cry of cancer, the cry of the lonely, the cry of the anxious. We worship a God who hears those prayers. I think sometimes we don't pray because we don't think anyone's on the other line. Well, here we find out that someone is on the other line, and it's God himself. Now, they still had to set out and go to Jerusalem. 
And like I said earlier, they were bandits, they were pirates. It was not safe on this journey. But God's people are always accompanied with God on their journey to Jerusalem. And if you don't think that that's a metaphor for our life, then you're not reading your New Testament because we too are traveling to Jerusalem. You can't read the book of Revelation and not know that we too are traveling to Jerusalem. But it's not old Jerusalem, it's new Jerusalem. And with us is God himself. Always with us. Because we have a relationship that's based on grace. I've been reading a biography uh, from John Newton. Oh, it's so good. I'm reading it slowly, and I've been reminded of the truly wretched man that John Newton was. No wonder he could write those words in Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. He, he was a slave trader. And you read his story, and there was much that made him a poor, wretched sinner. And he wrote Amazing Grace. And we all know that first stanza. But I think as it relates to this, the second to last stanza is one that is applicable to us all this morning. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. That's God's people. Dangers, toils, snares, we have already come. How do they get through? Newton tells us, "'Twas grace that kept us safe thus far." And grace will bring us home. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we are astonished that you hear our prayers. Lord, we pray that, that you would speak to us. I, I, I don't know exactly what spoke to everyone, but Lord, I, I pray that you would speak, that you would draw men and women to yourself, either for the first time or the millionth time, and that you'd comfort them by the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you that your mercy is new every morning. And we're grateful that not only that we can love you, but that you first fundamentally and primarily love us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.